Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 32, Eigenrobot vs. Toto Tavrinki. Morning, all. I am here with Eliza. That's Toto Tavrinki. T-O-T-O-T-A-V-R-I-N-K-Y at Twitter. And we are going to talk about um, Robert Robert Persig, who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, as well as Leela, which is his, his more ethical work. Um, Eliza is a longtime Twitter user <laughs> who, who crashed in my house once. And uh, gosh, what, what can I say about Eliza? Um, I think you have a book. Did, did I give you a book? No, uh, I was reading, uh, I think, Dance, Dance, Dance uh, for like the few days that I crashed. Yeah. Okay, wait, do I own a book called Dance, Dance, Dance? I don't know what that is. I swear I had talked about at least lending you a book, but but and I was going to give you trouble about that. But You talked about giving me a thing of whiskey after the police uh, poured out my vodka. Oh, shit. And I had to tell you that, no, I wasn't 21 at the time. I wouldn't get this through <laughs> the airport. <laughs> oh, man. Wait, the police took your vodka? Yeah. Uh, I was really dumb and uh, got high in uh, my dorm um, and then left the door open to air out the smell. Yeah. Because oh. I was very high this, at the time. That, that, this is sort of thing you would do. Yeah, I mean, it does solve the problem. And then they searched my room, found some vodka, and were like, "You're not uh, over twenty-one. Uh, we're just gonna pour it out just to be safe." Oh God, that's cruel. That's so unnecessary. Like, at least take it and drink it, man. I don't know. <laughs> my um, my aunts were. I mean, you know, they they came of age in the '60s, I think, something like that, early '70s, and. They knew a place in the woods where they were growing up that where, where there was like somebody had a grow operation. So they went out there and they they took a bunch of marijuana from this grow operation in a national park and they took it home and they wanted to prep it. So they put it in the oven to dry it out. But I think they had the heat on too high and it did dry it out. But then also the entire house smelled like pot. And their mother, my grandmother, came home and they were saved by the fact that she didn't know what marijuana smelled like. And so they, she, she didn't know what was going on in the house. She was just a little bit upset about the smell, but not, not you know, like really upset. I had, a, I had an interesting family. So, um, <laughs> so okay. So um, anyway, you – how are you doing, by the way? I, I haven't seen you since that that fateful I don't know weekend or whatever, and it seemed like you were mostly like coming in and out of here partying, which good for you, by the way. Uh, it was like four days. Um, I spent most of it just kind of crashing in a room. I got dinner with a friend. Um, but aside from that, um, nothing much was happening. Uh, after that, I got a job. Uh, didn't really like it, so I got another one. Uh, got fired from that one. Now I'm looking for work. Nice. Oh, nice. Okay. Are, I can't remember. Like you were in school, but on the fence about like finishing up. Was that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was in school. I was looking for a job. And then like two weeks after I leave your place, uh, I get a call back from uh, a place I had been interviewing 
at uh, during that time. Uh, and they decided to offer me a 19-year-old uh, sophomore a software position uh, doing Haskell shit. Nice. Solid. Okay. Well, let's... Um, yeah, we can talk after this if if you want to get a job at Boring Core. Um, not like the Boring Company. I'm not yeah, that cool. Yeah, I get you. Um, <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, also, everybody, hire Eliza. So uh, to, to do Haskell shit, are you, are you still on the Haskell, Haskell boat, Haskell train? Uh, yeah. Um, the community keeps seeming smaller and smaller, I guess, as I know more people, which is a little bit freaky. Uh, so yeah. I have been looking at Python and stuff, but Haskell's just so comfy for me. Mm-hmm. It's a place I can live. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I, uh, I'm sort of like that with Python, although at this point I write so little code that, I mean, who even cares? <laughs> cool. So, Hey, so let's, let's talk Persig. Um, so I'm tell you, let me start out by giving you my impression of what Persig is and what he's done and his importance. And you can tell me where I've messed it up because I assume you're more of a Persig scholar than I am. And if, if, if that's not true, and if my rereading the Wikipedia page on Persic five minutes before the podcast was actually like leaves me in a better place to talk about them than than you are, that's also fine. Um, so so Persig, as I understand him, was a weirdo, like the, in the, a guy in this great tradition of American social and political philosophers, kind of like. Um, Shit, what was the guy's name? Uh, the, the guy who wrote The True Believer, I think Eric Hoffer. Uh, and, and he just worked some other job and then wrote this philosophy treatise in his spare time. But not exactly a treatise because it was written for popular consumption. It wasn't, you know, some kind of Kantian tome of, you know, indecipherable shit, which also ended up being publicly popular and everyone in Germany tried to read it because it fucking Germans. But, um, but, but so Persig... Uh, wrote wrote two books on philosophy. One was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and the other one was called Leela, an Inquiry into Morals. And strangely, unlike Ayn Rand, as far as I know, people who are employed as academic philosophers don't spend a lot of time like griping and moaning that no, he's he's not really a philosopher. He can't do that. Presumably because what he wrote wasn't quite as directly offensive to, you know, some of the social mores that were prevalent at universities. And maybe we can analyze this through Persig's own lens of, of understanding why Persig was not widely hated in the same way that Ayn Rand was. Um, but but also of note about him is that Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance apparently is, is depending on how you classify philosophy, the best-selling philosophy book in... Of, of all time, uh, which is interesting. I had not been aware of that, nor did I finish it. So, okay, that's where I am so far. What am I missing? And what did, what did I fuck up? So before he writes the book, uh, he's fucking around in India because he's not really sure what to do. Um, ends up doing philosophy there, uh, getting a degree there. Um, interesting. Moves, yeah. Okay. Moves back to the States, uh, starts teaching in... I think University of Montana or something like that. Yeah. Teaching English. Yep. He's not very happy with any of this. Um, 
and <laughs> teaching English in Montana. Oh, brutal. Uh, so he decides, okay, I'm going to actually try with this philosophy thing. Gets into U Chicago. Uh, he's going through it pretty well, but he has real issues that he expresses as being with Plato, but I'm not really sure what, um, ends up going electroshock, uh, as a result of, uh, this. Oh shit. Okay. So his back, I'm, I'm just going to spoil stuff because I don't care. So, I mean like his, his backstory in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Men and sort of the narrator is that, that he goes through electroconvulsive therapy and has like this dramatic break with his past self. Right. Yeah. And so that actually happened to Percy. Yeah. Oh shit. As far as okay. I remember. Okay. I, I buy it. Um, as far so- as anyone on this podcast knows that definitely absolutely happened. <laughs> and so, uh, he ends up writing his Zen. um, and that gives him a great amount of success. Uh, people just love it. It's yeah. coming out at this pivotal time in America, I think like 1968 or something like that. Big counterculture, uh, just touchstone. Yeah. And then 20 or 30 years later, he sits down to uh, write another book after fucking around, uh, sailing uh, around various places. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's Leela. Yeah. It's meant to be a corrective to the things people improperly took from uh, Zen. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, Leela is an absolute dogshit novel. <laughs> I'm, okay. I appreciate you telling me this. <laughs> wait, wait. I, I wish I had known this before I ordered it, but further, I'm glad that I didn't read it after I ordered it, knowing now that it's shit. Okay. Uh, no, Continue. no. It's, it's shit as a novel. Um, okay. But there's just like, random paragraphs or even just chapters that are just devoted to him going off on some particular part of American culture and how it has totally poisoned the well of our understanding of the well of the world. Yeah. Wait, did you like Moby Dick? I've never read, I've read 15 pages enough to get to the fart joke and dropped off there. There, I didn't realize there's a fart joke. The the first part of the book is very funny. Um, I only asked because he devotes, you know, entire chapters to things like specific ways of, you know, processing whales on a whaling ship and also another chapter on why whales are fish, which I found very charming. And so I was wondering if maybe this is different in taste on our parts. Anyway, continue. But no, okay, so so he does this. And is it does it read like a sort of like John Galt fifty page speech about why A is A? Uh not particularly. It's more like did you ever read the Cory Doctoro young adult books? No, I couldn't even make it through down and out in the magic kingdom. Okay. Um, uh, if anyone out there has read it, it's like the, uh, it's like, uh, doctoral asides in those, but, uh, for you, it's like, uh, he will come to a thing in the story that, he, uh, that is represented particularly well in this, uh, historical story. Um, he even talks about how he writes the book in the novel he just has a bunch of index cards that he can't figure out how to properly arrange. So sometimes he just uh, throws them all together and sees what connections he can make. Oh, he yarn walls. Yeah, so exactly. Best the, new favorite verb. Yeah. Okay. The entire book is structured like that. <laughs> okay. How to not write a novel. All right. So, so it's, it's in some ways it's, it's a terrible novel, um, but it's readable. It sounds like you made it through. Oh, yes, I loved it. 
<laughs> it was terrible. I loved it. Yeah, okay. Because so the idea must have been pure gold. Yes, uh, I, I actually agree with that. Um, one of the particular focuses of his tirades is the Boazian anthropologists, uh, particularly Ruth Benedict and Margaret Mead. Oh, okay, interesting. Why are they called Boazian? Uh, because they were uh, students of, I think, Franz Boaz. Uh-huh. Um, and took uh, his ideas about how to do anthropology very seriously uh, uh, and started spreading them around a lot more. And that's why a lot of anthropology is really influenced by Boaz. Interesting. I need to look something up. This is fascinating to me because, and it's a complete departure from what we're talking about. Um, uh, shit. Um, I wonder if, okay, maybe not. Anyway, um, there, there's a, there's a, a famous, uh, archeologist in the black company books and his name seems like it should be Boaz, but I'm not sure that it is. Um, okay. So, He's like he's got it out for Margaret Mead and and the Boazians. And what's his beef? Uh, he thinks of them as being relativists, even worse than Protagoras. Was, t- sorry, was Pythagoras a relativist? Uh, Protagoras. Oh, Protagoras. Okay. Um, and so this has doomed uh, America from flourishing as a country due to this relativism being introduced into the cultural spirit because now we can't decide what's good and what's bad. Right. Yeah. That is a real problem. Um, okay. So, and he blames Margaret Mead for the downfall of America in this way. Uh, particularly due to her popular, uh, popularity in coming of age in American Samoa, mm-hmm. which was apparently really popular among the Greenwich types. Yeah. When it was published, which I don't understand. Wait, really? I don't understand why it would be so popular. Um, I mean, my so I haven't read it, but my understanding of it is that she, so for anyone who doesn't know, like she, she went to American Samoa and she interviewed a bunch of people about like, you know, their, their teenage sex lives and, and so on. And my understanding is that it, it it's terrible and it's been, sort of deprecated in the sense that she had a really biased population and, you know, she was some white lady who showed up in American Samoa and then they were like, Oh yeah, let's, let's kind of like take this lady for a ride. Um, but okay. But it makes sense to me that people would be into it in Greenwich. Like I, if, if, you know, it's, if it's presenting a vision of the world that you want to be true, like, oh yeah, everybody is fucking around all the time and it's great. Everyone's happy and free love and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, like that, that kind of reminds me a lot of, um, you know, just, just visions of how society could be that tend to crop up over and over again. Like, you know, what if we just had open relationships? <laughs> we got this. We can hack, we can hack relationships. It's fine. We got this. Uh, the particular thing that was baffling to me was that people would just start raising their kids based on the models presented in coming of age. Uh, like it's the, uh, the Duchess de Orleans and, uh, reading Rousseau. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, like it, so, so it surprises you that people would do this. I just, maybe I thought that Americans had better taste. Maybe I thought that (laughs) lacking aristocracy might unfuck things, but, I guess I had too high of hopes. 
I mean, okay. So I think that that's true about certain, I don't know. I mean, like, look at the number of people who join cults. Look at, um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Rousseau. Like, he, in his case, he single-handedly apparently brought back breastfeeding among, you know, the French aristocracy. And that seems like, you know, probably something that turned out to be good in retrospect. But people are nuts for adopting new social theories of, like, how everything should be done on the basis of, you know, some some thinly sourced... <laughs> you know, claims by experts. I suppose. It's the most, I don't know. I, and I guess that's mostly, I guess that's mostly looking at America as it is now. But, you know, if you, if you project backward into time, Americans have always been very happy to, you know, try completely new shit just because someone tells them it's a good idea. I mean, like, look at, you know, look at, look at fucking, um, look at the Puritans. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, so but your idealism aside, okay, uh-huh. so, <laughs> so <laughs> go on. Uh, uh, he views uh, the uh, Boazian circle as uh, coming into contact, uh, like the Boazian circle in the 1950s, then merges with the Beats. Yeah. And then exports this to California. Uh, and this is why ni- the 1960s were just as fucked as they were. Because of the Boazians and because of the... Oh, and California in particular. Boazians, Beats, and California, yeah. <sighs> yeah, do you think... Were the Beats actually that influential in American society? I mean, I know that they they kind of pushed a lot with... I, I think they pretty much bled into hippie culture later, as I understand it. I'm making this up, so it could be false. But did they did they get a lot of like more mainstream cultural attention or mass cultural attention? Uh, I think that it's more like the... Um... Uh, the Velvet Underground phenomenon, uh, everyone who buys the album uh, starts a band sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, if you're around uh, Ginsburg uh, reading Howl for the first time, that is probably a religious experience. If you're around Ginsburg reading Howl for the first time, you're probably going to sleep with Ginsburg. <laughs> I mean, yes, uh, and that might be a religious experience for some, but... <laughs> Come here, uh, Kat. Come here, cat. Stop complaining. Sit in my lap. Sorry, go on. Uh, but like looking at uh, Abby Hoffman or Ken Casey or people like those. Yeah. It makes sense. Uh, I see the beats definitely in them. They were intermixed with them. Yeah. And so that's ruining society, basically. Uh, because they are deviating from the correct path, as Persig believes. Um they uh they are too into what he refers to as a dynamic quality a kind of quality that can't be firmly placed on any ground it can't even be properly defined the most concentrated form of it is the ridiculous true and not true uh oh like the the superimposition of true and not true yeah hmm wait this is starting to feel like a personal attack wait <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I I feel like I kind of skate the line between, you know, true and not true, and uh, quite a lot when I tweet. Uh, that is the case, but you have a lot more of static quality. Persig would uh, ta- uh describe it as okay. Um, static quality is the kind of quality that you can fall back on. It's easy to just do and live a good life with, mm, mm-hmm. and so the Epicureanism. 
that you promote is, uh, in my opinion, and I think that he would agree, a kind of good st- uh, static quality. Yeah. It's easy to do. It will give you a decent life. Yeah. And I think, okay, so so when you're talking about this, we were, I mean, we mentioned Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And the the thing that sort of drives at least the earlier parts of that book is he's going on a motorcycle trip with his son, I think, and some friends. And he's got this old motorcycle that he understands and knows how to repair and it's not particularly flashy, but it works consistently and he can sort of manipulate it and understand it with reason and, and experience and medicine and so on. And his friends have these like big ass new expensive motorcycles that they don't understand. And that gets them into trouble. And when you're talking about static and dynamic, you know, he, he refers to those, those other cases respectively as classical and romantic in a way that, that I don't actually understand those words. I, I think they mean something different. But um, it sounds like this dynamic and static quality also roughly maps onto that. Does that seem right to you? That's somewhat it. Um, dynamic quality is usually a purely mental phenomenon. Um, yeah. Although, of course, it would manifest physically as all things. Um, but the dynamic quality... Uh, correlates well with um, doing weird meditation stuff, uh, taking lots of uh, psychedelics, um, generally just kind of like jostling your mind around and seeing what comes up. Yeah. That's okay. That's pretty interesting to me too, because, well, okay. So I've taken a fair amount of psychedelics and I also don't necessarily feel like that makes me less myself. Like I, I almost feel more myself after having, like in the past when when I do, when I've done that, I've almost felt more myself afterward, like and and during, and it, it does, it's not even jostling it around is like stopping it from jostling around and make, mm. <sighs> but okay, I but I can also see how perhaps a large number of people who do this on the regular are maybe in a different place than I am and trying to get something different out of it. Yeah, I have to say that most of my experiences with friends who do them tend to be of the more... Do you have stereotypes associated with uh, Bay Aryan cat girl? Now I do. <laughs> yep. I, I I can imagine. Yep, completely. Uh, yeah. Um, and so that sort of thing... Um, is something that I see a lot in there. But I think that you can see dynamic quality also in societies, um, where you just take something, fuck it up uh, a whole lot in a very short period of time, see what comes out. Yeah. Um, The French Revolution, a very big case of this. Yeah. It's hard to come out of something like that the same. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure France has ever recovered from that. I mean, seriously, like... I don't know if Europe has. Oof. Well, I mean, it, it seemed like it seemed like Great Britain maybe was somewhat untouched by it for a while, but maybe they were just coming down from a really high high. Perhaps. Um, I think that he would see Great Britain as having 
sufficient uh, static qualities, um, particularly socially, uh, that they're able to weather higher amounts of dynamic quality than others around them. Yeah. Um, particularly the uh, social uh, static quality that he sees is exemplified most in the Puritans, even though he hates them. Yeah. Yeah, I saw he had opinions about American like American society and history too, which we can touch on in a second. Um, I wonder if, do you, do you have any really good like archetypes of dynamic and static quality? I mean, you, you mentioned like Bay Area cat girl is maybe being very, and no offense to any Bay Area cat girls who are listening, but um, he, he had some ideas about like, you mentioned that as an exemplar of, of dynamic quality. What, what are some good examples of static quality? Uh, good examples of static quality. Um, I think that for a particular biological uh, social uh, mix, um, something along the lines of uh, Augustus or uh, uh, Taizong, I think of Ta- of uh, the Tang Empire. Oh yeah, which one is Taizong? I've I've just been listening to Chinese history, but I don't. Was he the one who ruled over the Tang at the largest extent? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was um, impressive. Basically, the sorts of leaders that reign in the uh, social excesses um, while keeping things safe from warfare for uh, the majority of their citizens, um, at least in the interior, just generally trying to give people good, safe, normal lives in their er- in their areas. Yeah, okay. So like I'm thinking like um it's it's interesting you mentioned Taizong and Augustus specifically because they seem like two I mean two really two of the most prominent political figures and and really leaders in in the fullest sense in history. Um so there's I mean there's is there kind of a magisterial quality to this or a sort of like sense of rule? I mean, like I'm just imagining, you know, an emperor card. Mm-hmm. Uh, there absolutely is that they had authority that was immediate and reflexive when they said things, things were done. Yeah. They weren't second guessed. They weren't passed. Uh, they weren't, uh, uh, they were obviously hobbled um, by the streams that they passed through. But mm-hmm. they remained fundamentally unchanged, their orders. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, except Lex Julia. <laughs> um, okay. So so that makes sense. So there's, I mean, I think there's kind of, did, would you say there's some amount of like order versus chaos to this? Yes. Uh, chaos uh, would be very uh, dynamic. Um, uh, order, very static. Um other examples of static quality um, for a purely biological uh, situation, the tree. The trees are good at doing the tree thing. And yeah. they can do the tree thing in so many different places. And even though it's fundamentally very similar things uh, in most cases. Yeah. So it's, and, and it also sounds like he has a pretty n- positive valence for static quality and pretty negative for dynamic. Uh, particularly in Leela, um, 
which was written, I think, sometime in the early 90s, uh, where he had seen uh, what he considered to be the excesses of dynamic quality first from the 60s and then, oh god, from the 70s. Mm-hmm. And he thought that, sure, maybe most people had gotten back on track, but American culture really hadn't. Uh, we were still valuing things that were uh, completely ridiculous, except in a dynamic frame. Yeah. What what did, what was he mad about in particular? Um, I think that he was mostly mad uh, about there not being a sort of circling the wagons on culture trying to present a unified front uh, from uh, in the intel- uh, intelligentsia. Yeah. Which he views as a very important thing uh, to have an actually good nation or empire. Sure, you can have disagreements within yourself, uh, but you need to uh, have at least one orthodoxy with which to lecture the others. Yeah, okay. That makes that makes a lot of... When you put it like that, it makes a lot of sense to me that you had mentioned Taizong or, or Augustus. I mean, they they really did try to... I don't know. They really did seem to exemplify a certain kind of moral order, even if it was only aspirational in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what he values the Puritans for. And he, although he does agree uh, with his previous work in Zen that, yes, people should try to uh, go beyond uh, the current order, that shouldn't be valued. That shouldn't be praised. If they find good things, then they find good things. The people who do that should be considered to be outcasts. Interesting. So, I mean, like, if they find good things, they find good things. But so the people should be considered to be outcasts rather than like then it taken as because I I could see you I could see making the case pretty easily that like looking for new things could be considered just simply value neutral. Like maybe you find something good, maybe you find something shitty, but the act of looking at itself doesn't necessarily seem bad to me. But he, instead of instead of judging results, he's judging the process in particular. Yes, uh, he thinks that there should just be a uh, huge cost uh, uh, in proportion to the deviation. Interesting. So that, you know, honestly, that seems kind of un-American to me. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, if you think about like the uh, the Rajneeshis or uh, some group like them. Uh, are they well, the, oh, those are the ones who uh, executed that bioterror attack, right? By yeah. like putting. <laughs> does, does he talk about them? No, uh, he doesn't. I remember seeing it linked on some thread. I think on Lambda the Ultimate or something like that. Yeah, I, I that that thread we had up the other day with the um, that and the the Medfly bioterrorism. Um, but like also like Waco. Um, he would think that, sure, those groups are trying something different, mm-hmm. and they should just be kept to the outside of society. Yeah. Um, although, he would also say that uh, the way that you think about this uh, is you op- uh, operating in a very uh, mode of intellectual uh, quality. Where intellectual intellectual with- quality. Okay. Um, where the important thing is good ideas. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, social quality values uh, good societies, um, biological quality values good organisms. Um, 
And the problem with the intellectual uh, uh, mode of quality is that it is it tries to do this value neutral stuff, mm-hmm. but it's not very good at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it, so is he arguing basically that intellectuals should be outcasts? Um. Intellectuals uh, should either repeat the party line or be outcasts. Yes. Yeah. So what about I? I've got this vision of intellectuals as outcasts, sort of being like my impression of what shamans are, where they they're within society, but they also stand outside of it, and there's this understanding of how the world works, for which they have a, a larger model than most people in society you know, can use. And the reason for which they're consulted is typically because something is happening to somebody in the society or to the society itself that is outside the scope of what is normally understood by the society. So like when you go to a shaman, when there's a problem that your usual model cannot handle, where, where there's something that is otherworldly, perhaps, that, that you need some broader perspective on. But you know, also shamans are, are strange and they, they sit outside of the existing social order. There's something other. He does actually mention shamans, particularly uh, with uh, an account from Benedict uh, among the Zuni peoples. Mm. Uh, there is a uh, there is a person who is thought to be maybe a shaman, maybe just a troublemaker, who is constantly getting in trouble with the uh, local priests. Uh, he would just uh, get locked up for whatever he was doing at the time. Yeah. Uh, but then, after one lockup, it seemed like he changed. And then he took uh, entire control over the tribe, uh, knocking out the priest structure, even. Wow. Uh, and everyone loved him, thought that he was uh, such a great leader, this previous troublemaker. Uh, and so, his question is, were the priests wrong uh, to try to control him or try to stop him from uh, being seen as a proper member of society. And Persig seeing himself as uh, the shaman in all of these. Yeah. His answer is yes, the priests were acting correctly. Right. See, I mean, it gets to be a little bit strange. So what if the priests of, so, okay. So how about this? What if the priests of society have, have this dynamic quality and value it. And what if, what if the only intellectuals like, is it right in this case for intellectuals who value some kind of static quality to be outcast from society? Should they be? Uh, I think that he would consider it to be in incoherent in the sense that not in equilibrium um, for priests to value dynamic quality, and that's why he's so spooked by Americans keeping at it for so long. Yeah. He thinks that there's going to be a destabilizing event. He's not sure where, he's not sure when, but the signs aren't good. Yeah. Does, so, and and what, what kind of, what would this destabilizing event do? Just, like, cause society to... I don't know, sort of collapse on itself or not necessarily collapse, but certainly regress uh, through the progression that he sees of biological, social, intellectual. And so it'll push back our development and uh, impede our understanding of uh, the true nature of quality for a long while. Yeah. 
Um, so we might regress back to, say, Puritans, or we might re- regress back to Comstocks. That's that's kind of an inter- that's kind of an interesting like teleology to society that he has. Like there are these different stages, and you can rise through these different stages. And like he identifies like Puritans as as one point in an evolution of a society. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Maybe so. Maybe we should talk about that. I know from skimming the Wikipedia article that he sees, say, American society as being some kind of a amalgam of. Um, of European and then Native American values, um, so he claims. But but maybe is there a more complete review of like what he sees as the structure of of U.S. society and its its evolution? Particularly uh, from the uh, Native Americans, um, he thinks we have taken most from the Plains Indians, um, hmm. particularly their uh, uh, plain dealing, not necessarily honestness, but uh, straightforwardness, um, laconicness, as well as their distaste for celebrity. He says that uh, Europeans uh, will revere their celebrities, Native Americans will cast them down, and Americans will do both. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, um, it seems like Americans do have sort of a taste for celebrity, but we do like destroying them. Okay, so um, does... I, I'm curious whether there's what what would he have written differently if he had read Albion Seed. <sighs> um, I think that uh, he would see the Quakers as an important part of the organism that is the American nation, but one that should really be kept off more to the side than we uh, have previously let them. Yeah. Uh dangerous dynamic quality people basically yeah i was gonna say um i get the vibe from quakers of dynamic quality but maybe less so from the puritans i mean they they were really pretty straightforward right like good things are good like here are some rules you can follow it's important that you follow these rules so that you reveal this good about yourself i mean they they were very very open to moral absolutes and judgments but he doesn't like them uh, the Quakers or the Puritans? The Puritans. Oh, yes. Uh, he thinks that they're disgusting and he would hate living with them. But that's because uh, we've progressed beyond the need for Puritans. Okay. I mean, say what you will about the Puritans. They they definitely, like, whipped and scourged and drove Quakers out of town. <laughs> um, uh, I think that... Um, let's see, there's uh, Cavaliers... Um, which I think he would consider to be uh, more primitive uh, than even the Puritans. That's probably right. Uh, due to their uh, enjoyment of biology. <laughs> well, <laughs> they did enjoy biology, yeah. Not exactly the study, but the practice. The practice, yep. Uh, what's the fourth group? Uh, borderers. Uh, borderers are like uh, the dynamic quality version of the Cavaliers. And again, oh, I love that. They have like, they might have uh, good uh, societies for them. They might have uh, good ideas. They might even have some things that other people can learn from. But just keep them in the mountains. Yeah. Don't let them into your cities. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, to be fair, they were not let into the cities. They were kept to the mountains. So good job, American society. You got something right. 
Okay. So, all right. So the Puritans, so the Puritans are pretty basic. And when, when we're talking about these qualities, there are four of them, right? Besides uh, dynamic. The material, the biological, the social, and the intellectual. Okay. And, and there's, there's an ascending hierarchy there. So intellectual is the highest. The highest is the, or uh, the intellectual is the highest that we've known so far. Oh, so there, there are like as yet undiscovered qualities. Yes, but uh, the intellectual process has been going on for about 10,000 years, oh. at least. Okay. So, I mean, everything else has been going on for far longer than that. Yeah. So Just... we, we probably won't find any new ones soon. Yeah, at least 10,000 years. I have become an advocate of older civilization on the basis of rising sea levels. Um, but, <laughs> okay. And so, so the intellectual in this case just refers to like operating and, and building on, you know, constructs of intellect. Um, treating ideas as the moral species, uh, and things that will allow ideas to grow and to prosper and compete in themselves. Okay. Yeah. And so the highest form of that would probably be uh, a properly run free market of ideas. Yeah. Of course, this doesn't work out very well for humans because we're caught up in social and biological issues as well. Yeah, and people talk about a free market of ideas, and I this is a like complete side note. I don't think that's right. I've also seen wet market of ideas, and I think that's a lot better. Right? <laughs> like ideas, ideas don't like. Like the, the the way in which ideas like transmit themselves and operate and mutate feels much more to me like a wet market, which I mean, I guess a wet market is a variant of a free market, right? You have a large number of a large number of buyers and sellers and, you know, goods are pretty obvious and OK, maybe some of them contain deadly new viruses, but, you know, you sort of operate at your own risk um, and there's not much regulation and how, how could you even regulated so yeah okay it's a market it's a wet market specifically i love it um sorry go on and so I, he oh so, sorry no no no. go ahead so uh he thinks that innovations um like uh language and writing and uh the idea that uh someone shouldn't be punished for what they say are part of the ideas trying to grab hold of every other uh, substrates, societies, and organisms, etc. Yeah, to try to just make more ideas. Hmm. This um, you've played Chrono Trigger, right? No, actually, I haven't. No shit. Okay, I read you wrong. So there's there's a specific. I mean, it's I don't know. All of this, all of this reminds me a little bit of like the the Dreamstone and Chrono Trigger, or the um, the monolith that comes down in in 2001 where like suddenly it's this elevation of humans into this higher plane in a sense where suddenly ideas are really the, the thing that's being reproduced. I mean, maybe a way to look at this is I wonder if you could look at humans as being symbiotes with egregores and like the egregores have elevated humans in, in a way that really wouldn't have been possible at all before egregores but you know they're not of us huh like i absolutely I, agree okay interesting uh yeah. we are uh, we are symbiotes 
both with societies and ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have societal restrictions of the biological to try to control the biological and stop it making bad decisions and have it make good societies. And that's yeah. why the Puritans are so like that. Because okay. they need to restrain the biology. Yeah. And then you have uh, the intellectual trying to restrain uh, the society. Trying to say, no, you can't punish that person just because they're outgroup. They have good ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, because the intellectual doesn't care about what a society is, it might not even know what a society even is. Yeah. Outside of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the reason why they operate the way that they do. Yeah, it, it feels like he's almost hitting on on like sorts of different emergent entities. You know, I mean, society sort of emerges from a certain complexity of, of bi- complexity and count of biology, which in turn emerges from a certain complexity of material. All right, so, but but I don't know that you need a society in order to have ideas. Is that true? Maybe that's not true. Maybe if you if you have an unsocialized human, maybe they don't get inoculated with egregores. Uh, I think that he would just say that uh, this has been the case. Uh, it's hard to have an unsocialized human these days. Yeah. So we may as well just go along with it. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Does it that 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 less intellectual sphere doesn't feel quite emergent to me in the same way as each of the others does from the previous, but that's, that's fine. It's also very young. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I'm, I've gone completely off track. Um, <laughs> where, are you, where are you going? I'm sorry. I keep interrupting. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, you're asking for uh, good examples um, of static qualities. And I never mentioned a good example of intellectual static quality. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, something along the lines of uh, uh, something along the lines of I'm trying to figure out the right one, but some sort of British or American fundamentally liberal. Um, mm-hmm. Bertrand Russell is up there in the running. Yeah. In the kinds of uh, in terms of a person who just wants there to be a liberal society where people can have ideas and also live. Yeah. So I know less about Russell. Um, how about like, would you say he's like, does Burke fall into this sort of a, this sort of a framing? Um, Burke is a lot more regressive than Russell, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's too bound up in the social that he would put more restrictions on the intellect. He's too scared of the intellectual uh, dominating the social. I see. To truly be part of it. Actually, the rationalists uh, are like the uh, very less wrong, uh, less wrong you brand, not really the Twitter kind IMO. Yeah. Um, but uh, they are very good in terms of trying to get an ecosystem for intellectual quality. Yeah. Okay. They're a bit confused uh, often when they just fail to take into account the social and biological ecosystems operating underneath. Yeah. But I, I've never found a better place for discussion than rationalist reading groups that I can mm-hmm. just drop into. 
Yeah. So, um, okay. So are there, are there dynamic like counterparts to each of the four qualities that he identifies? Um, not or is really there counterparts? Is it, okay. Uh, like, the dynamic is just used to traverse. Okay. And, uh, transcend. Mm. Um, the dynamic is the motive, uh, motive force, uh, he would describe it as, because mm. if you just had static qualities, nothing would ever change. Yeah. How would you even get there in the first place unless it were, uh, created in that way? Yep. Yep. Um, and so through, uh, uh, charismatic individuals, shaman type figures, you end up attracting through the lower uh, substrate into the higher substrate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why he wouldn't want to kill off dynamic things entirely because they're necessary to get to higher and higher things. They just shouldn't be regarded as highly as they are. Yeah. Um. Sorry, sneeze. Um, which didn't happen. Don't you hate that? So okay. So he's. I mean, like the the self does sort of sound like an effort to lower the status of intellectuals and innovators. Yes. Yes. Okay. Which in some ways does feel fundamentally un-American to me, but I guess I'm only really familiar with the America of, you know, my lifetime in particular, and certainly the the post-World War II era. Um, okay. So how, what, I don't know, this, this does, I mean, you mentioned, I think you mentioned, you know, this impression of Persig as, as being, sort of a hippie style writer and and especially because you know he he wrote this book called zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance which you know hit it big in the late 60s but i mean fundamentally i don't think he seems reactionary but certainly certain maybe a little bit reactionary i don't know what what do you think i mean like it it feels really boring to just try and force somebody into this you know, modern political spectrum, but there is a quality of his ideas and, and his just vibe that feels pretty hostile to flights of fancy. He is very much a uh, reactionary, but it's as a matter of uh, current circumstance. Yeah. He thinks that the, cur- uh, the way things are, it's just unsustainable. Yeah. And you can see, uh, he, you can see cracks in the system uh, of the uh, things just breaking away, trying to go back, um, trying to leap forward and failing. And he doesn't like the ecosystem and wants to return to uh, tradition, one might say on Twitter. One might say. <laughs> uh, but he does have a deep appreciation in his heart of hearts for uh, cults and uh the weird shaman groups that might just form up. I think that he particularly would appreciate the Mormons. Huh. Because you have this cult. Uh, you have this charismatic leader spewing bullshit and uh, convincing his followers 
who are uh, running under the threat of life uh, because of their association with him. Yeah. And then he sets up a society. Yeah. That actually functions in the middle of nowhere. And it continues to run as a uh, relatively decent society, perhaps even outlasting a lot of American uh, society. Like, I would not say that I was raised in a society. I was raised among other humans. Oh, oh, that's a really good distinction. Yeah, but Mormons actually have a society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, my girlfriend uh, was very Jewish for a long time, and I think that there's still a fair amount of like Jewish societies. Yeah, but I know less about those. But it looks like particularly the mainline Protestant uh, societies have just disappeared as societies. just dissolved. Yeah. I mean, do you would you would you say that there's like a would you say that that the woke stuff is an attempt to create a society? Or like at least try try and like manifest one? I think that it's trying to create something in the same way that sitting in a circle with your buddies and uh, trying to talk to aliens is trying to talk to aliens. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Look, look. (laughs) I don't see anyone actually creating things in that space. Yeah. So, okay, so is creation dynamic or static? Like, what when you talk about creation, what does that... What does that map onto? Uh, The transformation of lower substrates into higher substrates. Yeah, okay. Which requires a dynamic energy to move up. It's not the sort of thing that you will just reach naturally. Yeah. All right. So I think I've got sort of a sense of what he's getting at. And sort of a sense of maybe his his critiques of American culture. And I I just have to say that I adore him for like looking at himself, looking at society, coming up with a system for society and concluding that his status should be lower as a consequence of it. (laughs) I actually, I kind of admire that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that takes a real like strength of character to be able to say, yeah, I'm just bad for people. (laughs) um but okay so like let's let's tie this a little bit to i don't know just just contemporary events i mean you emailed me and said you wanted to talk about this and i'm really glad you did and one thing that i'm curious about is why you wanted to talk about this specifically is it just like a a matter of ongoing interest for you or do you think there's there's some specific tie into the way that we interact with people on twitter or like what the hell we're doing today or, or what was the motivation? So I've had this in my head, uh, ever since like senior year of high school. Uh, and I've tried to tie it in with a bunch of different things and mostly failed. I tried Neoplatonism for a while. No shit. Um, I think that, uh, something along the lines of the Sephiroth might work, but I'm still working with that. Um, uh, but, uh, mostly it was, 
I wanted to see if it would make sense for other people. Yeah. Um, but onto uh, Twitter. Um, I view the particular sphere of Twitter that you and I are on kind of like how he views uh, like the 1960s California, particularly Bay Area. Uh-huh. It's this... It's not going to last. And I keep wincing when I see something that's like, oh, things are going to get worse or something like that. This place is going to dissolve eventually. But it feels good uh, in a certain way. There's so many good, not necessarily ideas, but modes of being on there. It's yeah. very inspirational. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you're thinking about just the fact that, that all scenes must end? All scenes must end, but this one's going to die in a snap. Because it just has too much dynamic stuff going into it. It's not... Maybe it'll work out. Maybe it will. But I can't think that it will stay. I can't think that it'll stay for 10 years. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like the issue is we need to form a society as quickly as possible, like the Mormons. Mm-hmm. Are you volunteering to be our charismatic, like, polygynous leader? <laughs> you are, like, the third person who has uh, suggested that I be a cult leader. Yeah, and, well, like- I certainly wasn't going to volunteer myself, but <laughs> now that you've mentioned it... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe I might just have to one of these days. Yeah. But it just sounds like it just sounds so annoying. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, one one of my major pursuits in the last year or two has been sort of low key and then also high key encouraging people to like shack up and reproduce. And that feels like a kind of society. Yeah. It definitely feels like there's a certain like culture of letters uh that you've been trying to push but also trying to keep going yeah and not just through horizontal transmission but also vertical transmission in the sense of like vertical and horizontal how in this case uh horizontal in the sense of attracting um other people uh into the group vertical in the sense of creating more people and like maybe they want to join the group oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think so. So like, what, what does it even look like to convert some kind of dyna- dynamism to, to, to something that's more static? Like, is this where you get lawgivers and, and scriptures and like dictates? Absolutely. Um, uh, I think that, particularly trying to embody the form along with it. Um, Did you read uh, the recent um, uh, book review from uh, Scott's Contest contest on Galen? I did not. Galen is in the the, the Medico? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so uh, Galen is quoted very frequently as saying, Stop just listening blindly to various experts. 
And then, <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, for those of you who don't know, Galen, Galen is cited as an expert for like a thousand years, and his his with with many of his dubious claims just being like you know the the dogma for for God knows how long. So, so do you say Galen is a success or a failure? Because he seems like if he people who shout out don't listen to experts sort of have this dynamic quality to them. And I think if they become static themselves or their, their legacy becomes static, people just sort of start ignoring that don't listen to experts thing. I think that uh, he was good at transmuting the dynamic into the static. However, he failed at his particular project of trying to inspire people to actually test medical claims. Yeah. Because he was very good at uh, describing the proper way to test exactly uh, what he's claiming. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, then, uh, actually, Persig does uh, use the fall of Rome as the example of what happens um, when uh, you try to uh, go too far um, with a particular mode of quality when the substrate just isn't ready for it. Yeah. When he views uh, Christianity as a fundamentally social mode of quality. Hmm. It was pretty intellectual. I mean, by by the time that you know, by the time that it was actually adopted by Rome, there there have been a lot of work by um, by Christian theologians to sort of form it as a synthesis of a, a variety of intellectual traditions that existed. I mean, for the for the majority of its history, I think there was a, a kind of Platonism to um, to Christianity, and that that didn't come out of nowhere. Yes, uh, but the reason why it succeeded, uh, Prusik would say, is because it extended the clan boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it allowed for uh, larger and larger societies to be formed uh, with common blood between people uh, who were not even family. Yeah. Because they both had drank Christ's blood. That's interesting. But I mean, you know, also everybody was a Roman citizen by roughly the same period in time, right? Um, and they, they had definitely really expanded citizenship. Legally, yes. Um, but would uh, a North African treat a Spaniard uh, and those uh, treat um, uh, someone from Israel as the same? Yeah, fair. Whereas if you look around uh, with, if you look with uh, Paul, just going around to various Christian places... They are very much of a brotherhood. Right. I need to think about this. I've been reading Dominion by, by Tom Holland. And if it's, it's a little bit outside of my intuition right now, how to frame this and like how to make a defense of Christianity as an intellectual innovation. But I mean, I think theologically, at least it's there now. So, okay. So maybe there's a question of whether God is more of an intellectual or social matter. And I don't have a clear idea about that, but, but was Mormonism a social innovation or intellectual innovation or what? It feels social to me. Um, I think that it was largely social. Yeah. Um, but I also don't understand Mormon theology at all. Yeah, I know something about planets and lots of wives. That's maybe the extent of it. Mm-hmm. Apologies to my Mormon listeners. Uh, I, I'm definitely not trying to take swings at your religion. I mean, I'm that's making fun of my lack of understanding. I 
don't really understand theology for a lot of Protestant traditions. I was raised Methodist, and uh, when my uh, Jewish girlfriend was asking me, so what do Methodists actually believe? I was like, Zenu. Uh, be uh, do good things. If you're confused, talk to uh, talk to people. Maybe read the Bible. That can't hurt. Yeah, I I guess I'm gonna once more stand Catholicism here. Um, <laughs> for actually having beliefs. Uh, yeah, or just having more like a richer structure. Okay, so but this is interesting. Let's let's talk about Catholicism and Protestantism. Um, briefly using this framework. So. Let, going to the Reformation, the Reformation seems to be to be an intellectual revolution, in mm-hmm. a sense. Yes, right. Like you, you take this. I I said on Twitter the other day that Catholicism is Mahayana, and I think that's correct. You know, it has it has this entire panoply of saints. It has this long like accrual of tradition of. You know the, these different ways that you can believe, and these different you know complex understandings. This this entire superstructure built around the Bible. Whereas, if you look at Protestantism, in a sense, was like kind of an attempt to strip all of that away and say, "All right, there's been too much accretion. We need to go back to this much simpler Theravada style of of understanding God based almost entirely on on these scriptures, perhaps entirely on the scriptures if we can do it." And um, like, I don't think there was a major change in, in the social order as a consequence from this, apart from, you know, removing the formal church in a lot of ways. And it feels purely intellectual. And so like, how, how would Persig parse this? Like, what would his take on all this be? Um, I don't know if I agree with you about it being intellectual, uh, with it being, not really changing the social order, since it seems to me that uh, Protestant countries tend to be a lot more... Bourgeois isn't the right term, um, but very look at, uh, made for people who are shopkeepers, artisans, those sorts of people. Middle class. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, the Catholic countries, I mean, they don't really have an aristocracy anymore. So they're a bit confused about how to act. Yeah, well, they still had an aristocracy. I mean, like, okay, but like France, France was probably the most aristocratic state in Europe at this point. You know, I oh, like. Oh, like, you're talking about in the Re- Reformation? Yeah, during the Reformation. Oh, sorry, no, I was meaning like now they don't have an aristocracy and they're confused how to act. Um, but yeah, no, uh, they kept uh, their uh, aristocracies very well. Um, and so. I was uh, talking with someone about why did England have so much innovation um, immediately preceding the Industrial Revolution? Mm-hmm. And I thought it was because of uh, the effects that Protestantism had had. Um, that it was further along the social chain. Um, and it didn't have nearly as many of the biological trappings like aristocracy is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, English civil war and all that. I mean, like, yeah, all the, we, we said all the aristocrats to Virginia. Um, yeah, I don't know. So what, is it, is it possible for there to be progress in, in one of these qualities over time? 
like genuine progress in a sense, or is is it just like more iterations on on the same thing and ideally as few as possible? Oh, absolutely. I think that the modern transhumanist movement is uh, bringing uh, has good steps uh, with um, the biological, even just doctors, even um, yeah, have been good at making the biological work better at the biological. Um, I think that we have uh, created uh, a fair amount of social technology, even if maybe in the past 50 years we've lost a fair amount of it. It's still there. I think if you look at the right places, it's just not very amenable to being written down and shared that way. You know what this reminds me of? You know what this is? This is Aldous Huxley. Hmm? Aldous Huxley. He, like, Persig is arguing for, like, a brave new world. Think about it. Like, you have the society, you have people with, like, all of these qualities. It, everything is quite orderly, you know? And and the people who want to innovate and change society and have any dynamism at all are shipped off to an island. Mm. Mustafa Mond. Like, yeah. what is he if not the, the, the incarnation of static quality? <laughs> Uh, I don't actually know. I think that uh, Persig only references Huxley for his doors of perception. Uh huh. Um, but I think that he would be like, "That's a good idea. Maybe not fully. Uh, but like, <laughs> we should move closer to that." Yeah, I mean, socially, it seems you know everybody seems happy. And and the only objection that you can really raise to it is aesthetic, I think. Yes, and that's where the dynamic quality comes in. Because when things aren't right, you feel that in your bones. That's the absence of the dynamic quality. Yeah. Wait, that like feeling that things are not right is the absence of dynamic quality? Uh, when you see something that is properly ordered and should be perfect, mm-hmm. but it isn't. Interesting. I really like that sentiment. So what if, so like, how do you know whether, whether you're a visionary or whether you're deranged? Uh, I think that person would argue that it's hard to tell uh, the difference from the outside or the inside. Yeah. Uh, You mostly just have to wait and see if it crumbles under incoherence. Is it, is it like a mandate of heaven thing? Absolutely. If it sticks around, it's good. Yeah. Okay. So, so I guess at this point we have like mandate of heaven, but for different qualities of biology and society and God damn it. I kind of like this and I hate that. I, I kind of hate that, but it, it's, it's fine, right? Like whatever works works. And if it doesn't work, then we punish you and kill you or lower your status at least. And if it does work, then well, you've still been punished and killed, but you know retroactively, we'll praise you as a, a visionary. Thanks. Yeah, Jesus. absolutely. That's why uh, Jesus was so good. Yeah. <laughs> so did did Jesus have dynamic quality? Absolutely. Dude was an amazing cult leader. Yeah, you know, you know what else this reminds me of is um, there was there was that essay about the guy who experienced theophany, and specifically as as Pan. Right. And he he has this this rant about how genuine religious experience, it tends to be suppressed or 
constrained by religions. And the purpose of a religion, I think, is to like permit these religious experiences to happen, but kind of enmesh them in much more of a static framework, you know? So, okay, yes, you will have great saints like, say, Francis or Teresa who have these ecstatic experiences and a very dynamic quality to them. And also a religion as it exists is going to be far more static itself. And it's going to try and either shunt these people into monasteries where they can't fuck things up elsewhere in the world or, or, you know, kind of try them for heresy or whatever else, you know, the era of prophecy is closed. That's a really good understanding. Yes. Um, I think of, uh, William James's, uh, variety of religious experiences and he mm. talked about how when he wanted to experience something religious, he took nitrous. Mm. And that is a very... Feeling nitrous was one of the closest places I've gotten to dynamic quality. Interesting. I couldn't understand any of it, and it was great. Yeah, I. it's really interesting you mentioned this. Bob Wright uh, recently had a discussion in his paid podcast about his experiences in college taking nitrous and he described it exactly like that. That that's what I said. Okay. So, so rank various drugs by how much dynamic quality they have. Hmm. Okay. So nitrous is going on top. Yeah. Mushrooms are too fleshy. Um, they're nice, but they're very fleshy. Yeah. Um, would you say biological or material? Uh, definitely biological. Um, okay. But, like, they make me understand why animals like to be pet. Uh-huh. Um, uh, CBD, uh, particularly would be, like, CBD uh, is interesting because it decreases my, like, autism-adjacent antisociality. It just makes huh. me fine living in a society. Have I ever interacted with you while you have not been on CBD? Uh, I think that there were a few times when I was like making a burger or something. Okay. You seem really chill at my place. Uh, yes, I am comfortable with you. I am not comfortable with most people. Fair. <laughs> I Okay, so I'm, I'm curious about this. When in the past I have used... Things like LSD analogs or mushroom analogs, all of which were legal. Um, I found I've I've basically I've found that THC makes me reactionary, and those other hallucinogens that I mentioned make me basically conservative. Like I'll take them and I'll I'll spend a lot of time thinking about how to build familial wealth and how to how to marry my daughter off. And, and how to make sure that my boys are raised right, and that sort of thing. Which feels maybe the opposite of what you might expect from, from something so associated with dynamic quality. That's definitely what I get from like near-psychedelic levels of THC. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a... For me, it's... Okay, how are my actions harming my ability to... Uh, live well with the people that I want to live with. Mm. That's a really interesting framing. How are my actions harming people? Uh, pretty I, negative. Yeah. Uh, I 
I might come off as like a bit happy or something, but um, I'm very self-critical. I uh, also I'm kind of an asshole, uh, just reflexively, and I have to mask that. Um, but sometimes the mask slips. Interesting. I yeah, you've always been really chill around me. Maybe don't be so hard on yourself. What the hell? <laughs> Stop bullying yourself. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. <laughs> I got, I like, I bought a Nerf gun to shoot my wife whenever she does stuff like this. <laughs> and it worked. Fucking idea. So, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so, okay. So, I mean, like, main takeaway so far, we've been going for, for more than an hour, which is totally fine. But, but also, I should wrap it up at some point and, mm-hmm. um, I have to pay my landlord. Um, 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 so what, what, what are your main takeaways from this, I guess? And what should listeners be doing differently in their own lives or, or in their social lives or in their intellectual lives or in their biological or material lives? Uh, my main takeaway is like, Things are surprisingly high levels of fucked right now. Yeah. And I don't know how that's going to resolve, but probably, like, figure out what bounds are on things and prepare for different levels of uh, how bad things might get. My guess is not going to be some sort of extinction level event or even, like, bringing us back to uh, the Middle Ages. My guess would be more something like back to the 1800s in terms of how to act. Um, uh, But also, it's important to note dynamic quality. If things feel wrong, it's not necessarily that they are wrong, but there's something there that you can investigate. Uh, Because, like, dynamic quality is uh, the promotion of uh, creation, and creating new thought processes inside of yourself, etc. Yeah. Um, also, uh, just be careful with dynamic quality. It might fuck things up for you for uh, a bit. Um, be careful with meditation. Um, that seems fa- meditation seems completely harmless, but like, I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, even more uh, weirder things like uh, psychedelics and hypnosis. It's fine. Uh, it's definitely fine to try, but be careful with them. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how about modifying your own memory to have different memories? Oh, Asking for no particular reason. I don't like that, but I don't have any... That's just based on a very internal disgust reaction. <laughs> Shout out to Liminal Warmth. Um... Okay, interesting. Oh, I have one final question for you um, before we head out. You mentioned something like you you had tried some other things, or like you you were a Pla- neoplatonist once, um, and before before like you know move, bouncing from one thing to another and and coming to this. Do you find it's really important for you to have a single comprehensive framework for understanding the world? Um. It's important to me how to have uh, that, but also for it to be wrong. Yeah. Okay, and this this accomplishes both things. It's comprehensive and wrong. Yes. 
I want things to be more right um, than other th- uh, than what I've had previously, but like it's important for them to be wrong in some way. If I don't know where they're wrong, I'm sus. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So do you, do you try to do any integration of this or just at least like, uh, you know, heuristic bouncing back and forth between different different frames as, as they seem, you know, as, as seems useful in a given situation? Yeah. Um, I particularly made sure that when I'm really hyped about a new frame, I try to just push it down for three to six months. Yeah. Because otherwise it might take over. Mm-hmm. And I like the way things are right now. Uh, yeah. I think that I've got a good intellectual biome going up up here. Yeah, yeah, good aggregome. <laughs> <laughs> got to say it out loud. Okay, well, hey, um, thank you. Oh, do you have anything to shill, by the way? Uh... It'd be nice if someone hired me. That's about yeah. It. Oh yeah, shill yourself. Shit, get a job. Um, everyone, give Toto Tavrinki a job. Uh, I'll I'll link to her profile on Twitter and um in the in the in the show notes. But yeah, check her out. She writes code. She's super smart, as you can tell. Um, okay, cool. Well, hey, thanks so much for coming on again. And uh, yeah, um, next time you come through Seattle, hit us up. We're vaccinated now, so hell yeah, uh, love to love to see you again. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been great. Yeah, no, likewise. Take care. You too. Bye.